I'm Krista Tippett. Today, the first in a two-part series on a new generation of evangelical leadership. We begin with Jim Wallace, a progressive evangelical activist who is advising presidential candidates and world leaders in what he calls the post-religious right era. There was always a more progressive evangelical spirit. It was a growing kind of phenomenon. This new generation cares much more about the 30,000 children who died today globally because of totally unnecessary poverty and preventable disease, cares more about those 30,000 kids than they do about gay marriage amendments in Ohio. They really do. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. I'm Krista Tippett. Evangelical Christianity has no ultimate hierarchy, but it does have guiding figures in every generation. This week and next, we speak with a few who are changing imaginations within and beyond evangelical Christianity about the priorities of this faith of over a quarter of the U.S. population. We begin with Jim Wallace, a progressive evangelical activist who is bringing his vision of religion and politics to a new generation of world leaders. He is determined to put poverty at the top of America's moral values agenda. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, the new evangelical leaders. The association of evangelical Christianity with conservative politics is a relatively recent phenomenon. It was only in the early 20th century that biblically conservative Christians, who became known as evangelicals, retreated from a 19th century tradition of socially and politically engaged faith. The religious right of the 1980s marked their re-emergence into the public sphere. But there has always been an active strain of evangelicalism focused on social justice. Jim Wallace has been in the vanguard of this for three decades. And after the 2004 election, many Americans, evangelicals among them, reacted against what seemed a Republican appropriation of faith and a Democratic neglect of it. Jim Wallace's book, God's Politics, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It, dovetailed with this new national discontent. The book became a runaway bestseller, and he became a player in mainstream political culture. Can Democrats reclaim religion as a winning political issue? Joining us now for answers, a charter member of the religious left, the founder of Sojourner slash Call to Renewal, the author of God's Politics. We are honored to have Jim Wallace. Thanks a lot, Jim. Hi, Tucker. Uh, I want to put up a quote on the screen. This is from Barack Obama. These days, Jim Wallace's counsel is sought from Capitol Hill to the World Economic Forum at Davos. He co-hosted a first-ever Democratic Forum on Faith on CNN with Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and John Edwards. So I wanted a deeper sense of who Jim Wallace is and what kind of influence he's bringing to bear on American Christianity and politics. Once a radical student activist, he is now progressive in his politics, moderately conservative on issues of personal morality, and he quotes his Bible like a revival preacher. Now 59, Jim Wallace was raised in Detroit by parents who he says were Eisenhower Republicans. Well, I'm from the middle of middle America, and my mom and dad started the church that was the place I grew up, Little Plymouth Brethren Assembly, very evangelical place, and it was our whole life. that We had no clergy, so lay leadership was, was what we had. My dad was an engineer, mm-hmm. but he was kind of the chief elder, and so I kind of was a pastor's kid, but he was kind of a real everyday work person. He got up every day at five in the morning to study his Bible for two hours and then got us up for work and school. And it was that level of commitment and passion. And they both were like that. They were the leaders of the church, though my mom was a woman, so she couldn't publicly be the leader, but they were the leaders of the church, you know. Was it so, uh, Plymouth Brethren, I think, yeah. can be many things. Were they um, theologically conservative? Did they have a social oh, justice yes. mindset? 
No, it was very evangelical in the usual ways back then. And I remember, I remember I was six years old, and my parents were a little nervous because, well, I wasn't saved yet. And I was getting up in years. I was six, you know. So there's a fiery evangelist that was billed to be coming in a couple of weeks. And, and so I was kind of dreading the day because I heard he was pretty scary. And all the unsaved kids had to sit in the first row. Uh, you know, <laughs> we never want to sit in the first row because you think the closer you are to a sermon, the more impact it will have in your life, you know. <laughs> but he preached and he pointed his finger, it seemed right at me, and he says, if Jesus came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven and you would be left oh, all by yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, it got my attention, and so (laughs) I asked my mother how to fix this thing, and to her everlasting credit, she told me about the love of God, not the wrath of God, and God wanted me to be his child, and so I signed up. It wasn't deep, but it was (laughs) as real as it gets, you know, for a six-year-old, but my second conversion was really the most important, because I'm 14 now, I'm paying attention in my home city of Detroit, and reading the papers, I'm listening to the news. And I'm asking questions. How come we live the way we do in white Detroit and life is so different in black Detroit, just a few miles or blocks away? You're too young to ask these questions. I was told when you get older, you'll understand. So where, or, when are we, what decade are we talking here? This is like, this is like uh, early 1960s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't get answers. So I went in the city to find answers and I met the black church. <laughs> And they loved the same Jesus and read the same Bible and sang out of the same hymn book, but made it sound so much better than we did. Did you just walk into a black church? Yeah, I I just started reading books and... uh, uh, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. and uh, Oh, so the I civil rights movement's bubbling along was, in the culture oh, yeah. at large. And I'm hearing about this guy in the South, this minister named King. You know, what was he up to? You know, how come we never had any black preachers at our church, never been to a black church? And, and so I came back with questions and new questions and new friends <laughs> and, and some answers. And an elder one night in a very pivotal moment for me said, Jim, you have to understand... Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. And our faith is personal. And Krista, I think that's the night that I left <laughs> in my head and my heart. And I was gone in a couple of years altogether and got, got joined the civil rights struggle and the anti-war movement. I didn't have words to go around it then, but I do now. And the words are that God is personal, but never private. And I had a privatized notion of faith that never touched the world. So you left the church because you felt that the yeah. church was enmeshed with that and couldn't get, couldn't make the connections you were making. Uh, to be honest, I felt kind of kicked out because I was raising these questions and they, they really didn't, didn't want them in the church. You know, our favorite verse in those days was, For God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Problem is, we only focused on the last two stanzas about uh, everlasting life and not, For God so loved the world. <laughs> and the world was what I cared about. It was my world. I was a teenage kid. I wanted to change the world. And they didn't care about change the world. They just didn't care about the world. So when you went to college, Michigan State University, you weren't a religious person? No. I was unsuccessfully evangelized by every student group on campus. We could put 10,000 people in the street in two hours' time in those days. We deployed students uh, all over the state of Michigan like an army. Uh, We were very well organized, and I wasn't a Christian. I was You know, I was pretty angry. I felt betrayed by the church, uh, though I never could quite get shed of Jesus, uh, to be honest. He was always kind of lingering and hanging around in my head and my heart. But no, I wasn't actively a Christian at all. Pretty angry, pretty oppositional to churches in those days. So so what pulled you back? Because I I sense that a lot of your activism was around issues that you still care about today. So what Mm -hmm. drew you back to that, to, to... faith to yeah. organized religion even. I was in those days reading Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, <laughs> Karl <laughs> Marx, like everybody was, you know, and I just didn't think that what I was reading and what I was finding sort of on the left was an adequate foundation or basis for, for life. And it wasn't deep enough. It wasn't strong enough. So I went back 
to the New Testament on my own, kind of one last time, and I began to read in the book of Matthew, just on my own, and I read the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) And amazingly, I had never heard a sermon in my home church on the Sermon on the Mount, (laughs) which was the primary catechetical instruction for the early Christians. And I read it, and I was just really you know, fascinating. I was blown away by how radical it was. It was to change everything, personal, spiritual, political, economic. Take, um, just, tell me just a line or two that, you know, that struck you then as central, that struck you still as just because somebody's listening who doesn't know what the sermon, what's in the sermon. The well, the I mean, there's Beatitudes, a lot in there, I know, yeah. But the, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, I was told at my home church that that was for a different dispensation, they said, for the future, when we all get to heaven. Ah. Now I'm 14. I said, I think we need that now. (laughs) Why would we need that in heaven, you know? But then I got to my conversion text was later in the book of Matthew, Matthew 25. And Jesus says, of course, famously, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was sick. I was a stranger. I was in prison. You never came to me. As you've done it to the least of these, he says, you've done it to me. Here's the Son of God sitting in judgment saying, how you treat those who are left out and left behind is the way I'm going to regard you treating me. Blessed are are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Evangelical social activist Jim Wallace I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, the first in a two-part series, The New Evangelical Leaders. In 1971, pursuing his renewed understanding of Christianity, Jim Wallace founded the magazine now known as Sojourners, which currently reaches 250,000 subscribers in print and online. But it was originally called The Post-American. Our text was this wonderful text in Romans 12, Don't be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the one version is, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And we were dealing with a totally Americanized notion of religion. So we said, let's call our publication the Post-American. Beyond, we're Christians first, and whatever else, second or third or fourth. Very radical idea. And the first cover, Chris, you should see it. Here's a sculpt of Jesus wrapped in an American flag. Right? <laughs> and, the, and the line on the cover of our publication was, and they crucified him. Hmm. Way to start, you know, kind of building bridges right. to the evangelicals, you know. <laughs> so it was like the first, it was a tabloid newspaper printed by the same people in Chicago who did the Black Panther paper, right. you know. And on the inside, <laughs> I, I counted, there were like 12 clenched fists on, on that first issue of the magazine. It was against the war, you know, and it was about poverty and justice, but it was also about how Jesus was was the foundation and the answer. And it was really, it was written, Krista, more to students like we had been. It was written to the activist, radical students who weren't Christians, not to the churches. We thought got a response from Christians around the country. It was like putting a flag up a flagpole. And those on the ground couldn't see each other, but they could see that little flag up the flagpole, ran to the bottom of the pole, and that was the beginning of our constituency. Sojourners is now a a, a big influential organization and, uh, you know, is even a a brand that's seen on CNN during a presidential debate, right? And I, I wonder if many people know that Sojourners was not just a publication, not just a, you know, an organization, but a, a community, mm-hmm. a living community. Yeah. Did that begin when you moved to Washington in, uh, when was that? No, it began. 1975? You're exactly right. We said, we got to do this. We got to live this way. We got to. So first, we were in seminary, and then we in seminary we got a house off campus, and we began to organize and 
mobilize, and we had we had these worship celebrations every week, and they drew all the alienated kids in the community, all the kids that were doing drugs, and so you're kind of a blacks. house church then, kind of. Yeah, oh well, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, and, and we did rock and roll, and we you know preached. It was really kind of and it drew just hundreds and hundreds of people, and and then we began to organize in Chicago, and we went to the inner city, and we started the community. We went to the very toughest, poorest neighborhoods, uptown Chicago, and began to live among the poor and work among the poor, and then came to Washington and did the same in in what was really the Washington war zones. I mean, this was, we moved in here, and there was gunfire every night, and cabs wouldn't bring people to our neighborhood, and and we tried, you know, in our own fledgling, very human, very flawed way to live. So it was a publication, it was a community, and it was a movement, right? From the start, we're traveling around the country, and, you know, and, and it is funny, now we're, you know, CNN or, or whatever. The experience for years, Krista, was speaking in a, in a stadium without a microphone. And the way you do that is you talk to one section at a time, and you keep moving around the stadium. I did that for years. And then you build up a constituency, very strong, very loyal. Well, now we have the microphone. But we've been in the stadium for years speaking without a microphone. But now things have broken through in ways that we never really uh, expected. And you still live in that Columbia Heights neighborhood, right? Yeah. With your, and mm-hmm. now you're raising your family there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a four-year-old son and a nine-year-old son. Okay, so, so as you said, you've been around doing this for a long time uh, in the stadium without a microphone. And you've been... You've been an evangelical. You've been an evangelical mm-hmm. leader in, in some circles. You know, after the 2000 election, after the 2004 election, many Americans, many of my fellow journalists kind of woke up to evangelical Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was almost a new phenomenon or certainly knew that it was so many, so many Americans with so much potential power and actual power. But I wonder if you would tell me your story of um, who evangelicals have been and, you know, kind of the diversity of the evangelical movement that you've represented for a long time in this same period of, uh, you know, 30, 40 years that we're talking about before um, evangelical Christianity was uh, a political force in the way it is now. Well, I'm a 19th century evangelical born in the wrong century. (laughs) Because back then, uh, Charles Finney, uh, Lucy Stone, the Grimke sisters, Jonathan Blanchard, these preachers, revivalists, were also abolitionists. They led the anti-slavery campaign. They fought for women's suffrage. They fought for economic justice. Uh, In fact, Charles Finney, who was the the evangelist, the Billy Graham of his day, really pioneered the altar call And the reason he did was he wanted to sign his converts up for the anti-slavery campaign. So faith got directed right to justice. Right. That is an incredible fact. Mm -hmm. So so I want to hear Jim Wallace's explanation, narrative, of how when evangelical Christianity burst onto the political scene in the early Mm -hmm. 21st century, Poverty was not one of the watchwords. Well, what happened was, if you look back, and I've been just enthralled by this revival history, you know, these Great Awakenings, and the first one, the first Great Awakening, led probably to spark the war, you know, independence and this new nation, this new sense of of being a new people. The second one was... uh, was Finney and the others about abolition of slavery and women's suffrage. Third was William James Bryan and the whole and end of the 19th century progressive movement led to the New Deal and the social gospel. I think the fourth one was the black churches and how they were the foundation for the civil rights movement. Then we had this period where literally uh, some political operatives on the right, overtly political operatives, had some meetings in this town, Washington, D.C., with some of the television preachers, Falwell and Robertson, and they struck up a deal. So this was, I think, more a political movement than a religious one. But they they grabbed issues that were important to Christians, like the sanctity of life or the health of marriage, but they turned it into a narrow agenda about abortion and gay marriage. And that was very successful for a period of time. But what people didn't understand was the, underneath all that there was real... Uh, uh, uneasiness and real dissension. There was always a more progressive evangelical 
spirit and move. It wasn't just Jim Wallace and Tony Campolo and Ron Sider. It was a growing kind of phenomenon. This new generation cares much more about the 30,000 children who died today globally because of totally unnecessary poverty and preventable disease cares more about those 30,000 kids than they do about gay marriage amendments in Ohio. They really do. Progressive evangelical leader Jim Wallace. at the beginning of what I think could be a new great awakening. I think we're at the edge of what could be a revival of faith that's, I'm known more as a social activist, as you, as you know, but I'm saying right now that, you know, we won't get to social justice without a revival of faith. You know, the issues are too big, too big to be left to just education or, or, or good organizing or the right program. And I think that point you're making that in your circles or in certain circles is new mm-hmm. because you talked about the fourth awakening, religious awakening, great awakening as the civil rights movement in the 1960s, which had an incredible religious base. I mean, Martin Luther King Absolutely. Jr. was a preacher and a Absolutely. theologian first mm-hmm. and foremost, but that got lost as even people who carried that tradition forward, you know, the people who cared about that kind of social program and social justice mm-hmm. detached it exactly from yep. that religious base uh, or inspiration or grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, so what went wrong on the left you know, that also played into what led to the religious right. And, and well, it, uh, the subtitle of my last book was Why the Right Gets Around the Left Doesn't Get, doesn't get It. Yeah. It was both. You're right. The left became very secular. Now, I want to say religion has no monopoly on morality. I want to say that every time I speak, I say something like that. But the left got very kind of, they became like secular fundamentalists, you know, disdaining religion, religious people, people of faith. Uh, and, and, and it really created a situation where the right seemed to own God. God was a Republican, obviously. And the left and the Democrats were hostile to faith and secular and, and, and you know, the polls about church-going people vote Republican and all the rest. Well, now we see what Time Magazine is calling a leveling of the praying field. <laughs> nice phrase. Uh-huh. Now you have three Democrats uh, running for president who happen to be strong and authentic people of faith. And we had we hosted all three of them on our CNN forum. The Republican side, there isn't a candidate who exemplifies this sort of uh, you know, conservative religious uh, movement anymore. So I think that's good because God isn't a Republican or a Democrat, and faith shouldn't be in any party's political pocket. We should be the ultimate swing vote, if you would, holding both sides accountable. So the changing agenda on the ground among evangelicals, Catholics, mainline folks, the whole Jewish renewal that's going on I'm excited about. And I'm talking to a lot of you, you are too, young Muslims. So uh, something prophetic is growing again around the country. And I think it's going to change the whole political landscape. Politics is failing to solve the big issues. When that happens, social movements rise up to change politics. And the best social movements always have spiritual foundations. That's what revival is. That's a pretty and big that's claim. Think we're gonna, that's a pretty yeah, big claim. I think that's, they're like mountains. I mean, they're like big mountains. Three billion people living on $2 a day. 30,000 kids dying today. You say, how do we... These are too big for us. The, the odds are against us. How do we change that? Well, the Bible says you've got faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed. You can move mountains. But I think anything short of revival of faith isn't going to be enough. So, you know, there were cries of theocracy or impending theocracy with right. the influence of um, conservative evangelical Christians in the mm-hmm. Bush White House. Right. And some people say that what you're talking about, while it's coming from a different direction, is also playing with the separation of church and state, crossing lines that seemed to have been drawn more firmly 10 years ago. It's a fair question, and I like to always answer because 
You know, Martin Luther King Jr. had had his Bible in his one, in one hand and Constitution in the other hand. And, and and I he never endorsed a candidate, and I never have either. He made them endorse his agenda. And while he navigated the courts of power, his base was outside of them. Uh, Desmond Tutu in South Africa, after the ANC, the Movement for Liberation, won, and they were the government, he'd supported them, but he stepped back and became a prophetic voice to the, the new government. Uh, so I think it's very important that we affirm the separation of church and state. That doesn't mean the segregation of moral values from public life, but also it doesn't banish religious language from the public square, as long as we are respectful of diversity and pluralism and democracy. Evangelical social activist Jim Wallace. Jim Wallace does not claim to represent a majority of American evangelicals, but he does increasingly command an enthusiastic following among young evangelicals. He attracted packed crowds at Christian colleges after the publication of his last book, God's Politics. Over 2,000 students turned out to hear Wallace at the prestigious Evangelical Wheaton College in Illinois, a place that once banned him from speaking during the Vietnam War years. Wallace noted in that speech that Wheaton College was founded by an abolitionist preacher, Jonathan Blanchard, a model of the 19th century evangelical impulse to social reform that he'd like to resurrect. Here are more of Jim Wallace's remarks at Wheaton that drew a standing ovation. Jesus' first sermon at Nazareth, I call it his mission statement. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's his Nazareth manifesto. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's what it says. Good news to the poor. And so I want to say, whatever else our gospel is, however else it changes our lives, and it does, it changes everything about our lives, our families, it changes our lives. But if our gospel is not good news to the poor, it's simply not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conservative evangelicals in America have created a Jesus who is pro-rich, pro-war, and only pro-American. That, that is a distortion, a misrepresentation of the Jesus of the Bible. I'm doing an altar call now. Don't worry, you don't have to get up and walk down the aisle. An altar call to a new generation of young evangelicals who are 19th century evangelicals for a 21st century who wouldn't conceive of separating their faith in Jesus Christ from their passion for economic justice. I meet them all over the country. A new generation's rising up. And I'm doing email altar calls all over the country. If you care about this, I want your email to get you a part of the movement, to get you connected. It's free. This is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, Jim Wallace's vision of how ending poverty could become part of the American electoral agenda. And I'm still searching. Yes, I'm still searching. For a way we all can learn To build a world Where we all can share The work, the fun, the food The space, the joy, the pain In many ways, our radio program is just the beginning. We're making our material more portable and inviting you behind the scenes. You can download MP3s of this program and my entire unedited conversation with Jim Wallace through our website, our SOF podcast, and in our weekly email newsletter. Discover more at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media.
ever need or want to seek to be a millionaire. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Jeannie Francis in The Note. A newspaper columnist finds a note containing a message of hope and forgiveness and searches for the intended recipient. December 8th at 9, 8 central on Hallmark Channel. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, the first of two programs on new evangelical leaders. Next week, we'll speak with the purpose-driven life author and entrepreneurial pastor Rick Warren, together with his wife Kay. She's become a bridge-building force in the global fight against AIDS. The Warrens are a rising influence primarily in traditionally conservative circles. My guest this hour, Jim Wallace, is influential primarily among progressive politicians. Though both Wallace and Warren, in what also seems a sign of the times, are in collaboration across the partisan and cultural divides of recent years. Jim Wallace is best known as the founder and editor-in-chief of Sojourners, which has long been a leading voice of progressive social justice evangelicalism. And especially since the publication of his 2005 book, God's Politics, Wallace has become something of a national celebrity, proposing a new agenda for religion in politics in what he calls the post-religious right era. Right now, Sojourners is planning a series of justice revivals across the U.S. This is a merger of two traditions that formed Jim Wallace, the civil rights movement and the mass public revivals of Billy Graham. Some see Wallace himself as a kind of Billy Graham figure for a new era, and he too has positioned himself as a pastor and spiritual advisor to powerful people. I asked Jim Wallace about this. Billy Graham was always very warm to me, always, always welcoming the new generation, Mm -hmm. uh, agreeing with so much of what we were saying. Uh, He said, the world would be surprised how much I agree with what you're trying to do and say. And and that tradition is powerful in me, but it's the Finney, it's the the ones who linked faith to social justice very directly that really fire my heart. So so I think we want to build movements outside of the quarters of power, but then you want to be able to speak to them. Right now, I've, uh, there's these open doors. Uh, Gordon Brown, the new prime minister of Great Britain, has been a friend for 10 years. We've been having breakfast and talking for 10 years. Kevin Rudd's to become the prime minister in Australia, Catholic, very committed, hmm. uh, very smart guy, five languages he speaks. We've been having dinner and talking. I am friends with some of the ones running for president here. I think we're going to have some open doors in some of the key capitals of the world. And when you say open doors, open to what? Well, Gordon Brown once once said over breakfast one day, he said, uh, uh, you know, for the first time in his history, we have the knowledge and technology and information and resources to end extreme poverty as we know it. What we don't have, he said, is the moral and the political will. He looks across a table at 11 Downing Street and he says, that's your job in the churches. And who That's was, is this when he met with, was it you or was this you and a group of um, other evangelical well, leaders? Well, first time he said that was to me over breakfast, just two of us. But then he said that to, I brought a bunch of leaders back for the G8 in Britain and he said a similar thing to all of them. Brown, I think, is the head of state around the world right now. The one who has the deepest passion for an issue like global poverty. He has it deep in his soul. Uh, and I think 
we're going to have a new generation of leaders now. I was just in Singapore, as I said, in the global south is rising up around the world, and there's some new leaders there too yeah. uh, in the poorest countries, new powerful political leaders. And what I'm saying is that social movements will be necessary to make real progress on the big issues. And historically, those have generally had spiritual foundations. Okay. And, you know, I think I may have met you the first time. We were both attending a conference and uh, it was in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. I think it was a couple Mm -hmm. of months after that. Mm-hmm. I had a sense in those weeks and months after Hurricane Katrina, and I a sensed, I believe you, you spoke about this as well, that it had really woken people up in this country, and it was no longer possible to ignore poverty in that great American city and others, racial isolation in that great city and others. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that's been picked up on. So, I mean, tell me how you experienced that. Are, are there things you're seeing out there that I'm not. I think you're right about Katrina, where we saw the people who were left behind mm-hmm. had already been left out in American society. So natural disasters often reveal the great disaster of the way the world is structured. But I still think the teachable lesson from Katrina, and even 9-11, is still there. It's around, the, I see it all the time on the road, uh, and I do think that uh, the new altar call for the new revival is going to be like the slogan in the movement in Britain a few years ago called Make Poverty History. Poverty and human trafficking and, 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 and HIV as an issue that reveals the, the, the inequality of the world is really going to be the, at the heart of this revival. But do we know, do we know how to eradicate poverty? Um, well, we have these three obstacles. One is the poor have not been a priority. Two is we have a debate about strategy. And three is the real one. Um, we don't know poor people. Liberals or conservatives don't really know. Poor people are utterly segregated. They don't live all over the country. They live only in certain places. And, and you know, until poor people are our friends, not just the objects of our concern, on the liberal side or the people who are to blame for their own misfortunes on the conservative side, uh, how can anybody say that, that out-of-wedlock birth and family breakdown and, and addictions are not a causal fact of poverty? How can anyone say that not affording health care and having no affordable housing to li- and having education that doesn't educate aren't causes of poverty? I think what I hear you saying is that poverty, in fact brings together um, both the issues of family life, right, and addiction um, that Mm -hmm. are, and sanctity of life that are important to conservative Christians, and also the issues of policy and the the social justice issues that that maybe uh, liberals traditionally would define as their moral values issues. Is that? Yeah. The biblical notion is that the truth about a society is much better known from the bottom of that society than from the top. We did this experiment way back a long time ago. As young seminarians, we found every passage in the Bible about poor people, about wealth and poverty, oppression, all that, and we found several thousand verses. It was the second most prominent theme in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the the Synoptic Gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of every 16 verses. Hmm. In Luke was one of every seven verses. And, And we took the Bible and we took a pair of scissors and we cut out of the Bible every single reference to poor people. And when we were done, that Bible was in shreds. It was full of holes falling apart in my hands. I'd take it out to preach. I'd say, brothers and sisters, this is the American Bible. It's just full of holes. I still have that old Bible now full of holes, ripped to shreds. What's happening now, Krista, is our Bibles are being put back together again by a new generation. This isn't about politics or liberal or conservative. This is about the integrity of the Word of God. There's nothing as basic as this, uh, how we treat the other, uh, the vulnerable, the poor, the enemy, the one who's not at the table is the one we're going to be judged by. 
evangelical social activist Jim Wallace. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. This week and next, the new evangelical leaders. In 2006, Jim Wallace's Sojourners community merged with Call to Renewal, another organization he founded. This advocacy initiative brings a broad range of Christian groups together across the political spectrum to address poverty and the manifold dynamics that make it possible. And, you know, I just want to push this a little bit more. I mean... Sojourners has been a, a pretty traditional social action urban organization. You know, you said before we're seeing, we've seen the limits of politics, and I think we've also seen, you know, the limits of tactics. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, do you see new ways to really help people not just care about these issues? Because I think people right. do care, but often they care and they just are, you know, overwhelmed by the idea that there's oh, nothing they can right. do about it. So maybe you would talk about people you know about or projects where, where those connections are being made in new and fresh ways. You work on these issues, and we've, we've done all of it. We've done the food co-ops and the tutoring, and we've done the housing co-ops. We, we, we've run homeless shelters, all the stuff. that It's all good, and it changes us to start with. It changes our yeah, lives. Right. But finally, you can't keep pulling bodies out of the river and not send somebody upstream to see what or who is throwing them in. You know, Salvation Army founders, Catherine William Booth, radical evangelicals in their day, they said you can't keep picking up bodies at the bottom of the mountain and not climb the hill and see who's pushing them off the edge. Now, I think the line is not from service to just politics. The line's got to be from service to movement. You saw that movie this year, Amazing Grace, about William Wilberforce. Mm-hmm. Very dynamic, charismatic parliamentarian. What it didn't show was the prairie fire movement all through the UK uh, of ordinary people who wouldn't put sugar in their tea because the plantations were making sugar made by slaves, harvested by slaves, and, and the slave movements themselves, the rebellions in Jamaica. What I, in D.C., you know, I often talk to people going to lobby on the Hill about this or that. And I say, here's how you recognize a member of Congress. They're the ones walking around with their fingers up in the air. And then they lick their finger and they put it back up and they see which way the wind is blowing. You can't change a nation by replacing one wet-fingered politician with another. You change a nation when you change the wind. You change the way the wind is blowing. It's amazing how quickly they respond. And so you look at Selma, Alabama, and how that led to a Voting Rights Act five months later. Johnson had told King uh, just before Selma, it'll take five years to get a Voting Rights Act. King said, I can't wait five years. Mm -hmm. He organized Selma. And we've got to now be wind changers, not lobbyists, but wind changers. How do we, by our service, by our doing in our lives, how do we then join together and knit together a movement that holds politics accountable? So if you were imagining, you know, what would your dream of the 2008 version of Selma be? You know, this is what we have to make happen in five months. Well, one thing we're actually working on is um, for a long time, I was focusing on trying to put poverty on the agenda for this election in a way it hadn't been before. And, And we're making some progress. We're now thinking about having something six months after the election where we invite the new president, whoever he or she is, to come and announce their bold plan for serious poverty reduction that will involve all of us uh, in the context of the faith community. I want to see national efforts. This nation, for example, is not very far away from the people saying, do something about health care. I mean, some polls show that people will even spend more taxes of their money 
to find healthcare solutions. And so, so again, so when you think is healthcare leadership. part of the idea of poverty, it's, sure, it's, a, it's absolutely. included in that. Now, so I think yep. there has been some wisdom, some political wisdom mm-hmm. in recent years that you can't mobilize Americans around an issue like poverty the way you can mobilize them around issues of self-interest or personal interest. I mean, do you think that's true? You know, I'm on campuses all the time. And, you know, students I meet, I always hear back two words. We're looking for meaning and we're looking for connection. And I think it's, it's, it's our need to connect with, with those that we've left out and left behind. I love the Isaiah text where it says that your healing, Isaiah 58, your healing is tied up in your response to those who have been left out and left behind. This nation needs to be healed of our divisions, our, our deep inequalities. Our, our, we don't know each other, and we're, and we're diminished by that. So I think it is something that, that at a deeper sense is in our best interest, finally to affirm the common good. Mm-hmm. The common good, which is a very biblical notion, uh, is, is in our own best interest. I want my kids to be raised in a, in a country that values the common good and not just uh, the survival of the fittest. Sometimes I say the religious right has been replaced by Jesus. And, and I think that's true. I, I think there's something so compelling about the figure of Jesus. You go to any street corner and ask anybody there, whether they're believers or not, what they think of Jesus. They'll say, well, you know, he hung out with poor people and prostitutes and sinners, and, and he was compassionate and loving, and he was for peace. You always get that. Then you ask what they think of Christians. You get a whole different set of adjectives throw an evangelical mm-hmm. it gets pretty nasty mm-hmm. <laughs> what you hear and yet this is the gospel of jesus not the gospel about jesus but the gospel of jesus that's drawing people uh from so many places so i see evangelicals a new generation and they're just being drawn to this radical vision of jesus and the kingdom i see catholic social teaching coming alive again i see mainline churches but i'm particularly seeing an immigrant church. I'm seeing a new generation of black Christians, you know, who, who aren't content with singing the praise of the civil rights, but they want to make their own history for justice. Latina, Latino Christians, uh, Asian American Christians who don't want the assimilationist ethic of their parents. They want to change their neighborhoods. They're creating, I think, what I'd call a post-white church in America, where we're beginning to look like the Church of the Global South. That's where Christianity is growing in the Global South. And it's deeply personal, but it's being applied to changing the facts of HIV or climate change or poverty. So I think, you know, something new is happening. And I think a particular narrow American view Going back to our first name of the magazine, Post-American, that's happening now. (laughs) Globalization has an inevitable logic, has no comparable ethic. And so perhaps international communities of faith could help supply the ethics for globalization, the rules of a global neighborhood that come from the prophetic tradition that's embedded in all of our great religious faith communities. A great line, which was the first line of one of your books, hope is believing in spite of the evidence, then watching the evidence change. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. What were you thinking yeah. of when you wrote that? And how do you, have you lived into that sentence? When I was growing up, the big choice was, was between belief and secularism. You know? Right. Uh, it was like there's this monster called secular humanism it's going to eat your children you right. know? that was the big choice I don't think that's the big choice there is a big choice though the big choice today for us is the one between hope and cynicism hope is not a feeling or a personality type it's a decision wherever changes come it's because some people believed in that possibility before it came to be it's the hope as a decision that makes change possible. 
And I think that Choice for Hope is the most important contribution the faith community has to make to the world, the promise and the power of hope. Things can change. They have and they will. And that's always something that we insist upon because our God finally is bigger than all the things that we think are so big. Blessed are are the poor in spirit, spirit. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jim Wallace is editor-in-chief of Sojourners magazine. He's the author of God's Politics, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. His new book will be published in January. It's called The Great Awakening, Reviving Faith and Politics in a Post-Religious Right America. We'd like to hear what you think. Contact us and share your reflections at speakingoffaith.org. And we're making our content more accessible and portable. You can always download a copy of all of our programs free through our website, our SOF podcast, and our email newsletter. And if you'd like to hear more of Jim Wallace, download an MP3 of my entire unedited conversation with him. And Speaking of Faith is now available on iTunes U, an enriching resource for teachers and lifelong learners. This free collection is organized by subject and features additional tools for learning. Let us know if you use Speaking of Faith in your courses. Your input will help shape our offering. Look for the iTunes U link at speakingoffaith.org. The senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with producers Colleen Sheck and Shiraz Janjua. Our online editor is Trent Gillis. Bill Busenberg is our consulting editor. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith. And I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Jeannie Francis in The Note. A newspaper columnist finds a note containing a message of hope and forgiveness and searches for the intended recipient. December 8th at 9, 8 central on Hallmark Channel. Additional support is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. On the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Next week, the second part of this series on the new evangelical leaders. I'll speak with Rick and Kay Warren. Rick Warren is the author of The Purpose Driven Life, one of the best-selling books in history, and he built and leads one of the largest churches in the U.S. Kay Warren is his partner in global ventures to address poverty and AIDS. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media 